When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah! Is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy, Tommy Vitor. I want you to know that somebody... Lovett, welcome back. It's, great it's to good be to back. see you, buddy. Been gone for about a fucking month. I How's it going? Somebody, somebody tweeted that uh, they sensed tension between me and Tommy, and that I haven't been on the pod. And I want you to know something. If there's oh ever tension God. between me and Tommy, it's happening. Tommy's off the pod. <laughs> I'm expelled? <laughs> oh, I, guys... thought, I thought you were going to say if there's ever tension between me and Tommy, you'll hear it on oh, the pod. Yeah. No, but... Did you guys decide in advance that but I'm pe- out? People, uh, we're not talking. It's an alliance. It's not... It's, it's you guys a have an alliance? Thing. It's a survivor thing. It's a survivor thing. Fuck. We don't know where Dan's going to come down. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna yeah, make... you can still get Dan. Dan's still gettable for He's you. still gettable. <laughs> can get, it could be a tie. Are we could... vote counting? Yeah. And... Uh, what are we uh, talking about today? What are we talking about? Today's show, uh, Republicans get nervous about the midterms. The Senate tries to pass same-sex marriage protections. And economic expert Lindsay Owens joins to talk about inflation. Then, a new game we're calling Two Takes and a Fake. I think that's what we're calling it. Pioneered by Dan Fiver. Yeah, yeah. This in was, conversation. This was, uh, this was on the pod Dan came up with this game. It's just riffs. Um, just does it in real time. I was told there was no uh, housekeeping today, but I'm just going to abuse my position what as host. Uh, the the wilderness. wilderness is out. That's not abusing anything, John. It's a show I have, you've been I working a, very hard on. I worked hard on a podcast, did a bunch of focus groups, talked to voters. Even Sundays. You in, Sundays. Uh, in in every, Las Vegas. Every day. In Atlanta, in Pittsburgh, in Virginia, in Orange County. Uh, these are all voters who, they voted for Joe Biden in 2020, mm-hmm. but they're not sure what they're doing in the midterms. So I talked to everyone, get very annoyed about that. Uh, Why? <laughs> just because it was funny. I, I tweeted about this on Twitter and everyone's like, what? People don't know. People haven't made up their minds yet. What is wrong with everyone? What is wrong yeah. with people? How could you not made up your mind? Why are we wasting our time on these people? I'm like, well, because they're voters. They're Biden that's voters. how we win they elections. Showed up, they showed up in 2020 to vote for Joe Biden. So we kind of need them. Right. If you them. are listening to this podcast, you are um, probably not a swing voter but we need them. Yeah. And then the fun part was after the focus group uh, in each city, I had a panel of experts uh, and we talked about what we heard in the focus group. So people that you've heard in the wilderness so before. So you had campaign experts react? I had a campaign expert. To your focus group panel? That's right. They did. They were campaign experts and they did react. Interesting, Dan. I, I'm going to be on campaign You're experts. stealing a lot from Dan I'm gonna today. Be on, guys, I got invited to be on campaign experts hey, congrats. react That's because of the booking. wilderness. That's I know. Booking. It's been this long and I haven't gotten invited yet. It's been so. a real show. Anyway, let's get to the news. With less than 60 days to the midterms, we've got ourselves a narrative shift. Ooh. Hold on to your hats. I love narrative Narrative shifts. shift. Here's the Washington Post from this weekend. Republican leaders are scrambling to shore up their chances to win back both the House and Senate as inflation concerns fade, Democratic enthusiasm for protecting abortion rights surges, and new fundraising challenges emerge in the crucial final months of the campaign. It's funny, I can't even get excited about leads like that because mm-hmm. I imagine them about Democrats and, and how annoyed mm-hmm. I am and how over-simple it is. Over-turked. Yeah. And you felt them searching for a third one yep. and they landed on fundraising, which is a real concern, but it's not as it's just not as high level as the other ones. We're going to talk about it. So the, ni- the knives are out for Rick Scott, uh, who Republicans are blaming for bad Senate candidates and money troubles. Party's also upset about falling gas prices. Uh, and are starting to make their negative ads about crime instead. Good luck trying to take out Rick Scott. We don't even know where half the Horcruxes are. (laughs) Hey, I I can make, I made a Harry Potter reference. I'm back. There you go. I don't even like Harry Potter. Written by a transphobe. About kids who are good at sports. You're required, you have to say that. Every time. You talk about Harry Potter. I really feel it. Okay. And (laughs) I still haven't, I still haven't seen all the Harry Potter. It's fine. All right. And internal Republican polling is showing that some House races are getting tighter because of increased enthusiasm and approval for Democratic candidates. Guys, let's start with Rick Scott. Is he fucking up the Republican Senate chances, or is he just an unfortunate-looking scapegoat? Uh, how, how real are these money challenges? I mean, I think th- when you said he was to blame for bad candidates, that's the one I think is completely unfair. I mean, Trump is to blame for most of the candidates. But I my, my takeaway from... And Republican voters. Well, yes, of course. Of <laughs> They're course. picking him. Of course. They're picking um, him. But uh, I think... Rick Scott is legitimately bad at his job. I wrote down a few proof points. Um, I would say releasing an economic plan that would raise taxes on half the country, bad idea. 
Even Mitch McConnell knew that was well, well, sunsetting Medicare and Social Security. Right. Yeah. And every other government program there is. I would say attacking Joe Biden for going on vacation in Delaware before getting on your private jet to a yacht in Italy. Bad idea. I also, it's very clear that the NRSC has spent way too much on strategies, especially digital ads and sort of like hyper aggressive fundraising digital tactics that are completely unethical that have not paid dividends. I also think, to your point, John, uh, Rick Scott put himself in his plans in an ad against two of the most unappealing things I can think of in the same ad. And so also, I, I don't think it was a very smart idea for him to go nuclear uh, in response to Mitch McConnell. He uh, did. <laughs> I mean, like, do that after you win, but don't declare now that your candidates are good. He didn't just, I thought originally when I heard that story that he just, like some reporter asked him and he, or he wrote an op-ed. He wrote an op-ed. He wrote an op-ed. <laughs> and uh, it, saying that anyone who criticizes him is a traitor to the cause. Traitor. Uh, he also said about McConnell, trash talking our Republican candidates was an amazing act of cowardice. They are not on, they are not friendly. No, they don't like each Rick other. Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. Rick Scott, I also love, he's just, he's like flying to Iowa. He's just, this is like the Rick Scott show. Well, it's also like, it's not even like, there's no, he's not, he thinks well highly of himself. Yeah. Well, it's also like, like, Hey, Hey, Rick Scott, ask somebody about your personality. You're not going to be president, (laughs) my friend. You're not going to be president. Especially. And also, by the way, like we don't do a lot of predictions. I'm going to predict Rick Scott's not going to be president. And an Iowa trip right before you don't win the Senate is also not a really, is not a winning formula. It does seem as though he's played a pretty good hand very poorly. Uh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this tape when um I was the Republicans say, win? They could this absolutely win. They could, no, but they, of course they Rick could win Scott, the Senate. Rick Scott, genius. It, do, it doesn't make runner. it. It doesn't. It, look, look, it it will it will not be Rick Scott's victory if Democrats manage to lose. We've lost before Rick Scott, and we'll lose again. <laughs> but uh, the question on the yeah. money challenge is a tougher one to, to answer. I mean, clearly the NRSE is not raising as much as they'd hoped. They are spending more than they should. But like any billionaire can swoop in at any time and cut a, a big super PAC check and level the playing field. And well, the other thing they talked about is the two hundred. Like they're really struggling to raise the from like the sort of the lower dollar. dollar donors. And I don't know whose fault that is, but I think it's sort of coming to like we've been talking about these absolutely bananas, conservative and, and Republican emails trying to kind of cattle prod their base into donating money. And it seems like maybe they've just they've 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 kind of grown resistant. Yeah, basically what they were doing is they'd send a text uh, to their list and it would say, hey, do you think Joe Biden should resign? Uh, write yes to donate. And then you then you text back yes and it automatically donates your $25 without telling you where it's going. That's called stealing. <laughs> yeah, that's not a great That is the same thing as the text I literally just got from someone telling me to click this link because there's been suspicious activity on my Amazon. Oh, you're not supposed to click this. No, I did not. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Um, by the end of July, the NRSC spent more than 95% of what it brought in. That is so, they spent so much money. It's too much too early. And all they have to show for it is all these like really bad candidates. Again, they could win. It's not because it, but spending 95% of what you brought in by the end of July is just, I don't think it's good, a good practice. It, also, by the way, like if, doc, <laughs> if doc, like hopefully Dr. Oz loses, like, all right, that's Rick Scott's fault because they didn't nominate the other godforsaken candidate who is just as unappealing. Yeah, Come David on. McCormick, the the, the from finance pro from Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah, Give me a break. And that's a Trump thing. But again, like Mitch McConnell is complaining because he wants Peter Thiel to swoop in and save Blake Masters and write him another big check in, in Arizona. And it's just these guys talk about paying for Senate seats like we talk about splitting a tab at a restaurant. It is, it is crazy. I do think it's interesting that Peter Thiel has uh, so far... Uh, decided not to put more money into that pack. There's a couple, uh, like another million and a half went into that pack, but it was from sources that weren't Peter Thiel, apparently. He's like a, a, a bang for your buck investor. You know, he wants to get in early in a primary where he can really, $15 million can really move the needle. It probably doesn't in the general. But but if you're putting in millions of dollars into a primary and then sitting out the general, not a great use of money. Yeah, I guess they're going to, the, the McConnell's fund is going to run ads uh, in that race starting in October. So they didn't get in early, but they're going to get in towards the end. I do, like, look. It'll be gross. We talked about these with the polls in Arizona. Like, Kelly has this big lead. It's Arizona. It's close. I feel like that's, these races are going to close. Yes. Um, so there are a few Republican economists in this piece saying that inflation might not be the silver bullet Republicans thought it would be. Uh, what did you think about that? Personally, my favorite thing was how they're just replacing gas prices with crime in the ads. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, just a, it's like, oh, you you feeling pain at the pump? Uh, I mean, you getting robbed at the pump? Like, wait, <laughs> just put on the greatest hits. Yeah, it's you know? again, it does feel all a bit like we should just be very careful to first of all uh, trust Republican strategists to make us feel better about what's going to happen in the fall. But also, it's absolutely true that gas prices are coming down. And I talked about this with Lindsey Owens. Inflation is still high year over year. It's not continue to rise 
it might be as simple as gas prices have a huge impact on how people perceive the economy, and that's having a positive impact. But prices, it, it's still potent. It's still a really big issue. Uh, yeah, I think the issue in June when the average uh, gas price was over five dollars a gallon, it was everywhere in the media. It was everywhere on TikTok. It was on. It's like everyone was talking about gas Tell prices. Been checking out TikTok. Listen, I know where my I'm, I'm with the kids. <laughs> prices have been falling every day since. We're now down to three eighty a gallon as the national average, but that's still over a dollar a gallon higher than we were in January twenty twenty one. So the question is: So he thinks this is cap is better? <laughs> not necessarily. Is better good enough? If if we're still talking about prices that are pretty high and food prices are also high, hopefully gas prices will continue to go down. But we'll see. I mean, if I'm a Republican, I'm still trying to blame high gas prices and high food prices on the Democratic Party. Yeah, make pump that the brakes on those my... crime ads. I, that's still a... I'd Again, still... that's their greatest hits, <laughs> Well, right? the thing that's heartening about this sort of debate that they're having is how unclear they are on, on what they should... Like, they really are all, all over the place. They're all over the place on abortion. They, one, of the, one of the consultants said something that, that was, like, I think very heartening to hear, which is, like, each of these individual candidates knows the race they want to run. That's what you say when a race is nationalized and you think you're about to lose. Yeah, they the, sound like losers. They're also going the back to, like... Keystone pipeline attacks. They're going back to, uh, you know, immigration attacks. They're going all the hits. There will they're be a hits. caravan. Yeah, they're this trying to make that. They're going to try to make I'm that sure. happen. And, and all it, that. I just want to be clear. That doesn't mean they're going to lose. Do you want to record both versions of that? Yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm just going to put editing. it here. I'm leaving it here. Olivia, mark it in the time. Yeah, say, the staff knows to only put the only put their correct predictions in. Uh, it, it is. If you look at Biden's approval and gas prices over the last month, the relationship is. Quite correlated, depressingly so. Yeah. <laughs> I say depressingly so because there is very little that a too. president can do about gas prices. And so you're just sort of, your approval rating is, you know, it's up or down based on the gas price. And, it, and again, because it's a, because this is like a, the media finding a narrative, it's like Joe Biden's approval rating skyrockets from 38 to 44. 44 is still not that great, people. It's <laughs> under 50. It's a disapproval rating. It's a, yeah. Well. It's not great. It's better than it it's was. It's better that it's. It could get you through. It could, look. It's less about Joe Biden right now, and it's more about these Democratic candidates. You got a Joe Biden sitting at forty four, forty five. You can plausibly yeah. outperform him. You got a Joe Biden sitting at thirty eight, thirty nine. Going to be really tough, really even tough. if you're the best candidate running against a really bad Republican. It's yeah. going to be tough to outperform him. What if anything should Democrat? Let's talk about Democrats because we control that. We don't control Republicans. What should Democrats do about lower inflation and gas prices? Brag about it? Should we start saying, "Oh, we were look at Joe Biden fixed everything." Uh, stop talking about the issue. Mm-hmm. Focus on abortion instead. What do you think? Is there a third way? Love it's a whatever big third you guys. Guy. You guys come up with whatever you want. Oh, wait, I, I wrote, I wrote love, a line. You ready? Love it's a no labels. Okay, uh, love it's no labels. Here we go. While Democrats were fighting the war on inflation, Republicans were declaring war on women. <laughs> Who's that for? It's for I whoever wants it out there in the world. The DNC now. So okay, they could do worse. We can look. We can workshop that. We can workshop that. I remember when economists and others were making fun of Joe Manchin on Twitter for naming. The basically climate change bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. Not us. We've been defending Joe Manchin since the beginning well, of time. I love. I'm glad he named it that. I, I think that's like. I think every Democrat they should bundle up all the economic proposals they've already made and and put them into a package that they call their like inflation plan or their gas prices plan, and then talk about it on the stump. Maybe it's part of your ads, but you know, if Dobbs and abortion is the most important issue in your state, then you should run on that and focus on that. But just have this in your back pocket and then wrap the Rick Scott tax increase mm-hmm. around your opponent's neck. That's yeah. what I would do. I, I would yeah, I would nonstop remind people that uh Republicans want to help rich assholes who are gouging consumers during inflation. And when all the liberal economists whine about that, I would ignore them. Here are the things we're doing <laughs> to take make inflation better. Here are the things Rick Scott and the Republicans would do to make your life, your economic situation, your prices worse. We've been working hard with Liberal hero Joe Manchin to lower your energy costs, lower your prescription drug costs, lower your healthcare costs. Well, Rick Scott was helping Jeff Bezos construct his mega yacht. Yeah, and 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 make sure that he didn't have to pay a single dime in taxes. It's not important, but it is like Jeff Bezos coming down from his fucking cloud bunker to like tweet at random professors. Uh, yeah, being a billionaire, it really seems like it fucks you up. Oh, it doesn't seem like he's that busy. <laughs> is he just bored? He's clearly looking through his menchies. Yeah. yeah, get off those. Uh, all right. One reason for Democrats to stay terrified uh, is the fact that no one's fixed the polling problems 
from 2020. Uh, Nate Cohn has a piece in the New York Times today about how Democratic Senate candidates are outrunning expectations in the same places dun, 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 uh, where the polls overestimated Biden in 20 and Clinton in 16, places like Wisconsin, Nevada, and Ohio. Uh, what do you guys think is going on here? Should we all cancel Nate Cohn for telling us this? Yeah, the, the thing you do with information that you don't like is you attack the messenger on fiercely personal terms. Yeah. <laughs> so, love it, you start. Like, uh, like uh, I can't remember. I don't know. I don't know the House of Dragons character's name yet, but Matt Smith beating up the guy that told him that his brother was going to send troops. You know, whoa, that's whoa, what we want to do to Nate Cohen. You did you just do you l- learn any lessons? That's not a spoiler. You're that's spoiling. Nothing. That's nothing. You, first of all, that's you called nothing. someone Matt Smith. No one even knows. <laughs> Matt Smith. I could say Prince Philip from The Crown. Unbelievable. Oh well, now you've now we know who that is. Yeah. What were we talking about? Uh, what Nate do you think Cone about the Nate Cohn piece? Oh, here's what I think. One of the, one of the three pieces you here's have to read think. today. <laughs> <laughs> here's what I think. Here's what I think. We should all just assume all the polls are wrong. The one thing that I sort of was stepping back and saying, like, well, we have something that's better than polls, which is elections. And mm. we've had uh, uh, four special elections uh, since Dobbs was handing down. And uh, in all of them, Democrats have outperformed Biden's 2020 showing. Now, there's some question as to what kind of voters are in those districts. Maybe they look more like the college educated voters that will help us in those places, but will show us underperforming in some of the uh, uh, places where we had this sort of polling error that Nate's talking about. That's fine. Uh, I just the thing about polling errors is you don't know because we won't know until we run the election. I think we should assume there is one and act as if. I just hope this is a public polling error and the internals that the parties are using to determine resource allocation, especially millions and millions of dollars of of TV ads are based on something a little more updated. So that's my concern. That the public poll, public are. polls are, are fun for us and whatever we can tell people to ignore them and their media polls and we can make fun of the media for not doing a good job in polls. But the problem in 20 was reflected in internal polling and it was also reflected on internal polling on both sides. Well, here's what you do. So even these like Repu- these anonymous Republicans worrying about shit, their polls could be shit too. We just call that uh, Trafalgar. The Trafalgar guy. Yeah, he's the only one. He's the only one. Trafalgar. Trafalgar. Thank you. The the problem here get those guys on. Or or one of the one of the the theories here. What the problem is is that it wasn't necessarily in twenty like Trump voters lying to pollsters. It was Trump voters being less likely to talk to pollsters at all. Response bias. And Biden voters were sitting home during the pandemic, you know, with their masks on inside, very excited. Uh, to talk to pollsters about how much they hated Donald Trump. They couldn't, they just, every every call, every pollster call, they got on the phone, they talked about how excited they were. <laughs> yeah, right. So, that, so that's, called, that's called non-response bias, but it's, there's a concern that it's a more structural problem now, which is people who don't have as much faith in institutions, don't trust the media, don't trust politics at all, whether it's Trump voters, whether it's non-college voters that usually vote for Democrats, are just not answering pollsters' calls. And if that's the case and there's too many college-educated voters getting into these polls, well, that's now going to help Democrats because we're now the party, even though we used to not be, now we're the party overwhelmingly of college-educated voters. And so if we can't get non-college voters in there, it's going to be a problem. And I, I go back to my main concern here. Who the fuck is answering their phones? I, I, I know. know. It's I just know, the, I the like. I just well, now don't they're trust. doing text polling too. That's weirdest how you're people. getting more. You're getting better responses years. with text. Better responses online. Half my phone calls say potential spam. I know. I, I don't understand There's always why for a warranty for a car I didn't buy in '93. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand why it rings at all. It doesn't even say a number. Well, you can silence unknown callers. That's but, what I do on but, my but iPhone. If, but if the phone knows it's potential spam, and they don't even tell you who it is anymore. You could just I, you could just file it away for me. I you guess don't need to make it ring. I'm okay. Here's the question. We'll take this to Mr. Jobs later. Um, <laughs> presumably, the bias would be relatively consistent over time, right? Like a six-month period, the bias would not change that much directionally. So you would know, you would have a sense of how the polls are moving directionally, right? Like if Democrats are doing better or worse, that would hopefully be because of actual responses, not necessarily because the bias is... Here's changing what, over time. Here's the concern. So Dobbs happens and right. a bunch You're of right. college mind. educated I liberals are like, fuck it. I am I can I am energized. I am mad. I'm gonna go out and vote. It's happening. And so they they are more likely to answer pollsters' calls. And Republican voters are like, Ooh, the media narrative is not good for us because people seem to yeah, be no. upset when they're uh, when the rights when abortion is taken away, and they're like, I don't want to talk to a pollster. And then there is this mirage of a of a of a bounce that's not really there. That well, would be the theory. Or well, 
or that <sighs> it just is it's it's not at the size that we've seen because there is of course that enthusiasm is reflected in the outcomes we've seen. It's reflected right. in voter registration. It's affected in what we saw in Kansas. Affected. It's, yeah. it's, it's, we've seen it in the New York 19th. Part of the problem here is uh, like the polls that happen in the run-up to an election are not a perfect, are, are a snapshot in time days, weeks before the actual election uh, uh, happens. And so, yeah, these polls can be off and the average can be off even in the days leading up to an election. But it's really hard to... like even know what you're measuring, what you're really comparing. Are you comparing that uh, Democratic enthusiasm was not as high as we thought it was? Or Republicans have built an incredible turnout machine, right? That turns people out in the final days of an election, especially on election day. We just don't know. It's not the size of the margin of error. It's the motion of the quotient. People who judge isn't here. We don't. We don't do that kind of innuendo. Yeah, There's a, a question. <laughs> the um, what's your denominator? You know, look, look. You you made the a very good point about the special elections. The only thing that keeps me up about the special elections is special elections and primaries tend to attract voters who pay a lot of attention to politics. Yeah. Voters who pay a lot of attention to politics tend to be college educated. Therefore, again, it's easier in a. It might. It might be easier in a special to get the kind of results. Listen, that we're of getting. course, it's true on both sides, right? Though yep. draws out. And look, one I thing that never... also changes the way in which. This midterm is going to be run in a new way. We're, this is a midterm that's going to have an electorate that may look a lot more like a presidential. We just have no Definitely fucking could. idea. Yeah. Especially, yeah. I'm not trusting a single poll out of Wisconsin. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, that was a big miss. Not Wisconsin has not had a good again. track record. Yeah, just in, ask, Sarah, just ask Senator elections. Gideon about polling. <laughs> No, then, then people in, in 18, polls were pretty right. They were right. You know, Tammy Baldwin in 18, the, the polls were pretty close. Same with Tony Evers. Yeah. Right, right. So right. you don't know. Uh, all right. So if Republicans are actually polling worse, um, of course, it'll be because of their extremism on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. Um, this is the week we'll find out uh, if there are at least 10 Republican senators who are willing to vote for a bill that would protect same-sex marriage uh, after Clarence Thomas, of course, wrote in the Dobbs decision that Obergefell should be overturned. Nearly 50 Republicans voted for this bill when it passed the House, but so far, only Susan Collins, Rob Portman, and Tom Tillis have said they'll definitely vote for it in the Senate. Um, Some Republican senators are saying the bill is unnecessary, and others are trying to include religious exemptions to same-sex marriage protections. You guys think Republicans enjoy being on the losing end of a a 70-30 issue a few weeks out from the midterms? What what do you think is going on here? Not just a 70-30 issue, an issue where 55% of Republicans support marriage equality. This issue is done. This is not a question. At the risk of being sent to the island with uh, Nate Cohn, do we worry, (laughs) do we wonder at all how many California and New York-based respondents are in that 70-30 number and whether it's tighter in states? That would just be my question politically. I think there's no doubt that this uh, being against marriage equality is underwater in every state. But the question is how much? I think think that's all you can say is that it's under in every state. Yeah. You know? Or just about every state, yeah. if it's a 70-30 issue nationwide. I, mean, I, I think these guys are trapped between what the majority of the country wants and what the MAGA base wants, which is, you know, pretty fervent bigotry. Yeah. Well, and also, I think the, the challenge here is, or, or why this is happening with Republicans, is Ron Johnson is the is really the most endangered incumbent. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you can make a case for maybe Marco Rubio, too. But um, the rest of them don't have a race where they have to face a general electorate that would probably be favorable towards same-sex marriage. What they have is potentially a primary coming up in some race in the future where they're worried about the base. So they're all saying, fuck it. I also think something's happening where they all want to jump together. So you could end up getting a bunch more Republicans, but they don't want to say it now and make themselves a target. So they're just going to wait for the actual vote. Which is why Schumer has said, we're doing a vote. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Johnson's in a it is his it is his Senate colleague that is leading the effort, who is a lesbian woman. Uh, and she has been really smart. You know, we talked about it when she was on Pods of America. Uh, obviously, we're you know, we're soulless political operatives who see an opportunity to kind of drive a wedge issue that we were finally on the right side of as Republicans have overextended itself on the culture war. Not our Senator Tammy Baldwin. This is this is an issue of the heart for her. She wants to enshrine marriage equality. And I think that that's that's righteous and good. Uh, but getting a bunch of Republicans on the record refusing to support the equality of gay people in their states uh, is uh, a helpful thing as we head into the fall. An ancillary benefit of what's obviously a moral crusade. And, and Ron Johnson's on Mars. Like, God knows what that guy's calculus is. He's just a crazy person. But- what, what is going on with that? He said um, he, he originally said he saw no reason to oppose the bill. And then a few weeks ago claimed he never said he'd support the bill and just made that earlier statement to, quote, get the press off his back. <laughs> he's <laughs> genuinely In fairness he's, to him, he's just not bright. He's genuinely stupid. Yeah. Love it. Did you see that? that so Ken Melman is leading... 
this like letter with like former Republicans to support same sex marriage. And I'm like, I'm glad he's still atoning for his sins. Yeah, he but, should. Wow. But uh, Charlie Baker, governor of Massachusetts, wildly popular. Right. I think he was running at like 70% approval is on the bill. But Dr. Oz, I think, has signed this letter um, in support oh. of marriage equality, which was interesting to that me. That is very interesting. That I, that I think does tell you something about what a genuine, what the politics are in a genuine swing state. Yeah. It's to be for marriage equality. Which is why I think the Ron Johnson thing is a little weird. Yeah. Because I don't think Wisconsin's that much different than Pennsylvania on that on that issue. I would, yeah. I would uh, you know. Yeah. yeah, they're also just sort of unaccustomed to um, uh, giving in to a Democratic position that's wildly popular. You know, it's just sort of out of it's out, it's out of Ron Johnson's comfort zone yeah. uh, to do something right on this. Yeah. And I do also wonder, too, it's like, all right, you know, we talked about this a lot on this show that like we want Republicans. We believe that they've gone too far on the culture where they've overextended themselves. They've taken on freedom. They are they are uh, way over their skis. They're obviously uh, have an incredibly unpopular position. They're trying to run away from on abortion, but that's also true on contraception. It's true on gay, on marriage equality. It's true on a host of other uh, culture war issues. And we're saying let's get them on the record over and over and over again. To a large extent, that is what this does. It has two purposes. Obviously, we want marriage equality uh, protected in this country, but just as much we want to use this. Uh, oh, no, I mean, not just as much. Obviously, it's much more important to protect marriage equality. But as, again, a cynical operative might say, if it fails because they can't get 10 fucking Republicans to support the equality of gay people in this country on a 70-30 issue, well, that might be useful to us, even as sad as we are well, that it, the bill doesn't it, pass. useful in the sense that it tells the American people, yeah, where the politicians they're voting for stand on a very important issue that they might not have known where they stood. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you do these like things. Rubio, and it's like, I'm glad Chuck Schumer's holding the vote. This is all the Democrats can do. They can't, what, what else are they going to do? They're going to go over and uh, try to uh, and you <laughs> convince what, Marco Rubio to not be an asshole? Like, Rubio has said everything he could possibly say to avoid saying what his actual position is on this issue. He's like, oh, this is unnecessary. It's a waste of time. Hey, man, yes votes and no votes take you the same amount of time. If it's a waste of time, why not just put people, we don't need this. There's no threat to marriage equality. Well, the leading conservative jurist says that it's up next. Why not put put your gay constituents at ease? The reason Marco Rubio isn't for this is because his position is unchanged. He is against marriage equality. He is for justices that oppose marriage equality. That is his position. He doesn't want to say it because he's a fucking weenie. He's in a race. And he's, and in, he's a race. in a tough race. He's Tougher race. all the time. We don't know how tough. We don't trust the polls. Uh, I would say, and, and Florida on this issue, I would, yeah, yes, of course, <laughs> he doesn't want this to be an issue in Florida. So that's uh, that's where they are. It's, we got gays in Miami. There you go. There you go. And some other places. And probably all over Florida. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, we're everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. We're everywhere. Uh, A gay person saw an alligator today. A couple. In Florida. In Florida. You're saying in Florida. I'm saying in Florida. I think some gay people saw alligators. Okay. Okay. Well, Near their homes. That's your thought. Are we done with this? We're done. When we come back, <laughs> couldn't find a segue. There was no segue from that. Uh, yeah, when I we come back, love it talks to Lindsay Owens, an economic expert about inflation. How's that? How's that? That's how's that for a segue. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to two, more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. 
Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us now to talk about inflation and gas prices, I have a Tesla. It's the executive director of Groundwork Collaborative, Lindsay Owens. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, so last spring, uh, thank you for saying that, by the way. Um, it'd be great to have you even if you weren't. Last spring, gasoline was averaging $5 a gallon. And Republicans were promising to destroy Democrats on inflation. Fast forward and Republican strategists are warning their candidates that they need to broaden their message. But even as gas prices have fallen, inflation as a whole has only really dipped. It's still near 40-year highs. What is the impact of inflation right now? How is it actually impacting people's lives? Yeah, so we are definitely not out of the woods yet on inflation. As you mentioned, you know, hit those 40-year highs in June. And then in July, started to see some cooling, right? So we got those gas prices down, which is a huge relief to families. And then we actually saw zero inflation in July. So on average, you know, prices did not increase at all. Um, you know, going forward, we're actually anticipating a little bit of deflation. Um, so we may see in the August numbers. Um, the price level cooling a little bit, you know, negative 0.1, something small, you know, but we'll still be in the 8% range year over year, um, which is a big change from years of low inflation. Um, I think, you know, how does this affect families? Of course, these high prices are really pinching families. Food prices are still up. Um, that's hurting folks, particularly on fixed incomes who really can't afford um, to drop down much to, you know, to decrease their demand for food. Um, and we're seeing, you know, still car prices are up, although we do anticipate used car prices to drop a touch in this next print. Um, but I think, you know, overall, the outlook is starting to look good. Um, it's very promising, although, of course, you know, still um, a lot of uncertainty in the, in the months and, and weeks ahead. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like trying to understand the economy in the wake of the pandemic? Like, how do you know when to apply, like, quote unquote, like normal rules? And how do you know when to sort of throw them out the window and say, we have no clue. It's a once in a century pandemic. Yeah. So, I mean, so much about this moment has called into question the conventional wisdom, um, the sort of econ 101 wisdom that you learned in you know, your freshman year in college. A lot of that has been out the window since the pandemic hit. Um, the supply chain snarls that we've seen are really unprecedented. COVID zero policies in China. I mean, those are things that really haven't impacted us ever. Um, you know, we didn't have the same global trade system the last time we had a global pandemic 100 years ago, right? Um, the shift that we saw, the sort of historic shift we saw from spending in services to spending in goods, um, that was really unexpected. Although, um, again, kind of good news on that front, we're seeing some normalizing there. Um, the fact actually that right now we're experiencing price declines alongside low unemployment, right? Um, that's unexpected. Um, it suggests we may not have to make that sort of hard choice, potentially that false choice, between low prices and low unemployment. Um, we may be headed to an economy where we could have both. Um, so, so much about this moment is unexpected. Um, and I think, you know, the, the president and the Biden administration is really in uncharted territory. And so far, it looks like they may be steering the ship um, through, you know, through these turbulent waters in a, in a really great way. Um, obviously, you know, the period of high inflation over the last year really tough, um, but really great policies on the recovery. We had this really historic recovery. Um, you know, on Friday, the Biden administration released their economic blueprint. And in that economic blueprint was this incredible chart um, that looks at the, the pace of recovering jobs in a recession. And what you see in that chart is that despite the fact that we lost 
the most jobs um, of any of the four recent recessions during this COVID recession, we actually recover the job losses the fastest of any of the recent recessions. So, you know, the COVID recession and Biden's response beats the, you know, jobless recovery of the Great Recession by a mile. Um, but it also beats the dot-com, you know, bust in the um in the 2000s. And then it also actually beats by just a hair the 1990s recession, even though the 1990s recession had significantly lower job losses. So really just, in, you know, an incredible achievement there, which is, you know, to your point, way outside of the norm for recession recovery. And I think actually, you know, rate setting a new pace for what Americans should expect um, from their president, from Congress, when we have a recession, when we have mass joblessness going forward. So you you talk about the fact that yeah there's been this inflation but at the same time this speedy recovery there are certain economists that say oh those things are tied together they're inextricably linked you see some people saying well what would you rather have would you rather have people kind of immiserated and without jobs or would you rather have a situation where we got everybody back to work but there are these rising costs uh, and that affects what happens next because the debate has now turned to what do we do to get inflation under control? Is it necessary or good to try to control inflation if that causes uh, some kind of a downturn? Like, wh what do you think about that debate? Do you make that connection? Uh, are you, you know, are you one of the people that was uh, marching on Larry Summers's house? Uh, what's happening right now? Yeah, well, fortunately for Larry, I don't know where he lives, um, so, <laughs> so I have not. Uh, I have not marched on Larry's house. I have taken him to task on Twitter a couple times. I guess that's the sort of um, you know modern modern version. But sure. you know, I, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that debate. I think you know, I think Americans should be incredibly, incredibly wary of folks selling unemployment as the cure for inflation, of folks selling mass unemployment and recession as the cure for inflation. Um, that is a cure worse than the disease, plain and simple. Um, and it's a false choice. We don't have to choose between low prices and, and low unemployment. We can have both. Um, and you know, the only thing worse than high inflation is high inflation and millions of people out of work, a la a Volcker shock. Um, so 100%, I don't think we need to be in a world where we are dialing up, dialing up, dialing up interest rates um, to destroy demand um, to try to cool inflation. What we're seeing here is actually some normalizing of the of the forces underlying inflation, those supply chain um, you know, shocks that we saw, some of the gas prices and the commodity shocks that we saw. Um, you know, not yet are we seeing cooling on the corporate profiteering. Um, you know, the Q the quarter two data came out and, you know, again, we're at 70 year highs on the profiteering. Um, but the good news is <laughs> there's a lot of room for cooling without destroying demand if we just take on some of that, um, take on some of that profiteering. So I think there is a lot of room for for inflation to cool and normalize even you know, even without, um, I want to understand what's happening even, with your ear pods there. I, first of all, it seems as though several pairs have fallen out of your ears and I don't really even understand how that's possible. It's the same pair. <laughs> it's the same pair. And then I'm just catching them as they fall out and then reinserting them when I finish a sentence. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk about the, I, I'm like interested the, on the on the question of of how much corporations have been profiting from these high prices, again, yeah. you see this debate about whether or not that's driving inflation, whether or not that's taking advantage of inflation. Can you just talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, uh, where inflation is at right now, people's expectations of prices and what they should be, and how corporations are using that uh, either maliciously or just sort of practically to kind of make more money? Yeah. So at, at Groundwork Collaborative, which is the organization I run, we have spent the last year just pouring over corporate earnings calls. Um, so either listening in, listening to the recordings, or, or um, you know, usually reading through the transcripts because it's a little faster. Um, and, and what you saw, particularly in early, um, you know, mid-2021, when, when inflation started to pick up, you know, what you saw is companies, you know, CEOs coming to their shareholders, coming to the market analysts on their quarterly earnings calls and saying things like, you know, prices are, are ticking up a little bit and folks are kind of expecting it. And so we're, uh, we're taking advantage of that. We're raising our prices too. We're, we're not sure how, you know, we need to raise them a little bit, but we're raising them a little bit more. 
Um, and that little bit more, that sort of gilding of the lily that was going on um, under the cover of inflation, right? They would say things like, you know, all of our competitors are raising prices. So like, you know, we feel really good about raising prices too. Or, you know, we expect that, you know, consumers are getting used to this and we, you know, we think they're going to pay it. So we're going to go a little further. Um, you know, what that did is a, you know, drive up prices, right. And accelerate the underlying inflation that we were already seeing, but B it drove profit margins up. So if you're passing along rising input costs, but then going for more, you're really expanding your margins. And what we saw were these historic profit margins, you know, 70 year highs we hit in 2021, and we're still there after Q2 of 2022. And so what that means, the good news is those sort of markups, right, which is the amount of money a company charges for a good above their input costs, those markups mean that there's room to drop prices um, without destroying demand, right? And, and Lael Brainerd, um, you know, at the Fed said just last week that she sees one of the real tailwinds for cooling prices to be the fact that there's actually quite a bit of room for prices to come down because of these historic markups we've seen over the last year. Um, so this is a really important and, you know, often poorly understood aspect of the inflationary environment we're in, but it is, um, it is a critical one um, to the long-term outlook. And it's one, I will say that, you know, President Biden and folks on the Hill understand. I mean, we saw, we've seen, you know, half a dozen hearings in Congress on corporate profiteering and inflation. Um, you know, folks are running campaign ads on this all across the country. Um, and President Biden has taken it on a number of times from the podium, you know, setting up things to go after meatpacking monopolies that are driving up prices, asking the Federal Trade Commission to take this on, um, and a number of other initiatives. So I guess what I don't understand about it is like, so I, I understand why they say, oh, we can we can raise prices a little bit more than people expect. What I don't understand is why does it work? Why did that actually work in producing? Because it seems like self-fulfilling, right? Like the reason people, the reason they think they can, this is what I found baffling. I don't know if other people listening found this baffling. It's like, oh, people expect prices to be higher for some reason. These companies take advantage, raise their prices even higher. And then because people expect it, they pay it. What causes that kind of a mania to like, well, it's almost like feels like a, a collective delusion. Like prices are artificially high, even above and beyond what you'd expect based on supply chain issues and, and supply and demand. But that works because we're in a moment where people expect inflation. So it's not just the inflation expectations that are driving this sort of profiteering we're talking about. The other thing is market power, um, is pricing power. So if you only have two or three or four players in a space, like we have with the meat packers, we've got the big four, yeah. um, they all can keep prices high because they're not worried about undercutting each other, right? Um, you know, if you've got artificially high prices, you should have a competitor come in and drive down prices, offer um, a lower competitive price. You don't see that um, in places where you don't have a lot of market competition. And you also don't see that um, in a world in which... Um, you know, folks are, um, you know, folks are just operating off some information asymmetries here, like you, like you referenced. But so, okay. But like, I, I'm, I'm all aboard making this argument, but so I guess like what I, what I want to understand is, so we've seen corporate consolidation in a ton of different industries, right? And that's been happening over the last, let's say yeah. 30, 40 years. And then all of a sudden this pandemic happens, it causes a spike in inflation. Is it that they're Prices rose dramatically and quickly and dramatically faster than you would have expected. The consolidation didn't happen at that pace. The consolidation has been taking place slowly. Is it that there's an impact that basically consolidation now means we should come to understand that in moments of inflation or other kinds of economic crises, these companies can exert more power? Is it, is it, is it the two things connected to each other? Absolutely. I like to talk about means, motive, and opportunity. The profit motive has not changed. The profit motive is secular. You know, I believe that corporations were out to make a buck before the pandemic and they're out to make a buck now. Um, the, the consolidation um, was also there before, right? Um, it was, you know, in some senses, the pricing power was latent, right? It was, it was existent. It was there. Um, in, in many cases, people were using their, their, um, their size and their market share um, to, to undercut competition in a world in which supply is plentiful, you might want to pick up market share in part by driving down your price in a world in which supply is scarce. 
you can't go build that second, third, fourth shop to pick up more market share. So instead you flip, you seize the opportunity, the means motive and the pandemic supply shortages being the opportunity um, to go for price, to drive margin up, to drive profit margins up by increasing prices. And so that's what we saw in this period. And I think, you know, you're a hundred percent correct. This is not something that we saw in the inflation of the, of the late 1970s. We didn't have the kind of consolidated, um, you know, market that we have today. And so this is, I think in many ways, um, poorly understood in part because it's a relatively new phenomenon. And I think, you know, the research is starting to bear this out. There's new research by the Roosevelt Institute that, you know, finds a, a you know, a sizable role for market power. Um, and there are other economists taking this on today. So I think, you know, we'll be talking about this for the next decade, um, but it's a really important part of the sort of constellation of, um, of causes that's driving that underlying inflation. And it is accelerating, not sort of primarily causing inflation. Yeah, because you, you see some economists who say, all right, I get that progressives would like to blame corporations rather than, say, you know, uh, 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 inflationary monetary policy or inflationary fiscal policy. But corporations haven't gotten greedier. They've been greedy the whole time. So that's an explanation for why, even though consolidation has been happening over time, this was a unique moment in which they could take advantage. Yeah. I mean, look, they've been running a pretty like aggressive straw man campaign where they're like greed, like these people think greed increased in like, you know, 2022. And it's like, you know, like I was a freaking Warren staffer for five years. Like, of course, I think corporations were greedy in 2021. Right. Like, yeah. That's not my, you know, that's not my mentality. And then the second one, as you mentioned, oh, well, consolidation hasn't increased. Well, you know, <laughs> this is a dynamic system, right? Um, you can have an interaction effect. <laughs> well, all of a sudden people look around and like, let's try it. They literally say that in the earnings calls. They're like, they're like, we've never really increased prices before because like, that's not really like what we did, right? We, you know, we, we went with low, low prices and discounting and, and, you know, picked up market share. And they're like, but we've been exploring this whole price increases thing. And it's like pretty great. Like people are paying. So like, you know, they'll say, so like, we're going to keep going. And, you know, I mean, they use euphemisms like, you know, further pricing actions should be expected in the next quarter or like full fulfillment or reach our full potential of pricing actions. But all of those are just euphemisms for like, we're just going to keep going until we fucking touch the stove. Right. 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 Until, until yeah. people stop buying. So one thing I want to ask you about, because you, you, you know, the Groundwork Collaborative is about figuring out sort of broad-based prosperity, prosperity that's shared. We talk a lot about economic inequality, but one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is geographic inequality and how growth has been distributed over the past several years and how this recovery has been distributing economic growth. You know, there that, that we've seen a lot of the growth go to sort of major metropolitan areas, places that have been growing, the urban areas, places where rents are out of control, and then kind of a, a permanent recession in whole swaths of the country. Has that trend continued in this recovery? Have you seen any signs that there's any kind of shift? Yeah, so we've seen some some early indications of of a shift there. So I would point to to sort of two factors. The first is we did have some, you know, some movement out of the major metropolitan areas in part because of the opening up of remote work, right? So we're seeing some some sort of new newer metropolitan areas um expand and new economic opportunities in some areas outside of your, you know, your coastal New Yorks and and Californias. Um, but the second thing I think that may you know, accelerate that trend. And it's a little bit too early to tell, um, you know, but the Biden administration's industrial policy um, is really targeted at rebuilding some of that um, lost manufacturing capacity um, that we, that we offshored over the last few decades. And that led us into this very precarious, brittle um, supply chain that lacked any resilience, right? Like, the pandemic hits and we can't even make PPE or COVID tests because we can't make anything, right? Because we made this big bet on the high wage knowledge economy and the low wage service economy. And we're like, well, let other people make the things, right? Um, and it turned out we needed to make some things. So I think, you know, the Biden administration's industrial policy um, is really um, targeted towards rebuilding some of that manufacturing capacity um, and in geographic locales um, that have been left behind. So, you know, Biden was in Ohio on Friday, um, opening up an Intel plant, um, you know, Yellen was in Detroit last week um, at a Ford plant, right? I'm really trying to use use the weight of, of government to put the thumb on the scale and rebuild that 
um, diverse economy that works for all of us. And, and that includes, um, you know, rebuilding some of that lost manufacturing capacity in areas that have been left behind um, because of offshoring. Uh, one last question. So we just went through this whole uh, uh, congressional debate about Build Back Better, which then became uh, mostly a climate-focused bill with some some healthcare and tax policy uh, due to the uh, vagaries of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's moods. Uh, as we look to next year, what are some of the policies either that fell out of, of Build Back Better or that were never in, in the first place that, that make you excited either about what Joe Biden can do uh, just on an executive level or what Democrats could do if we retain control of Congress? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the last month, there's just been an incredible reversal of fortune on the policy front. Um, you know, what was a fairly, you know, grim 2022, right? We had this big moment at the beginning of 2021 with the American Rescue Plan, and then we're sort of waiting for, for the next, um, you know, moment to, to make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, right. We've had the inflation reduction act, had the student loan forgiveness, um, student loan relief affecting, you know, millions and millions of, of families. Um, but there's a lot of unfinished business. Um, I think there's definitely more that can be done on the tax code. Um, we got those, we got that book minimum tax, um, that 15% rate we got, you know, the IRS enforcement, um, but we didn't get the corporate rate back um, to where it needs to be. There's a, there's a lot of unfinished business on the tax side. Um, obviously, need Congress to do that, but you know there are a few tax expirations looming that are always nice opportunities for for revisiting tax policy. Um, I don't think we did enough on the care economy. That um, piece of the Build Back Better agenda was completely jettisoned. We will not be at a full strength economy until we have affordable child care. Full stop. Um, so we've got to do something there in the next couple of years. And I think the other thing that was left out of Build Back Better, which folks aren't talking enough about, is housing. Um, you know, the time to have built massive amounts of additional um, housing supply and particularly affordable housing supply was probably a decade ago. Um, but it's never too late. And we're going to have to move um, move on housing. That's something that maybe has bipartisan appeal um, so I think that's going to be critically important. And then, yeah, there's a ton on the regulatory side. Um, there's just awesome leadership at the, you know, at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, at the Federal Trade Commission. I don't think, you know, Rohit Chopra and Lena Khan are going to be slowing down anytime soon. Um, you know, there's sort of decades of work to do on on both of those issues, and I think quite a bit to do on the on the labor front as well. Um, there's there's you know a handful of things that can happen at the Department of Labor. Um, including increasing the overtime wage, which is something you know that uh, that, that Obama made a run at um, at the very tail end of his presidency, and just you know wasn't able to get over the finish line. So I think they should absolutely take another run at at overtime as well. Lindsay Owens, thank you so much for being here. It was really helpful. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to two- more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. Yeah. That's two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. All right, before we go, we have our, our chief take officer, Elijah Cohn here. Um, not for take appreciator, for a new game. A new game that Dan Pfeiffer came up with called Two Takes and a Fake. Elijah, tell us all about it. Yes, very excited, guys. Shiny new segment that we're going to try out right now. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Two Takes and a Fake. Uh, listeners of the show, We'll note, as John said, that Dan suggested that we try this. It's our take on the classic game, Two Truths and a Lie. Here's how it works. I'm going to read you guys three takes. The producers have seen these takes. John, John, and Tommy have not. Two of the takes are real. One of the takes is fake. You three must decide which one is fake. Then this game has three different rounds. There are three different topics. And the way we're going to gamify this a little bit more is you guys are going to be playing against each other. You don't have to come to a consensus. I suppose you can come to a consensus if you want, but no, you guys no, are competing. I want to beat them. Okay. Yeah. All right. Are you guys ready to play? What is the, is it, does the winner get a prize? Wait a minute. I just got an idea. Does the loser? <laughs> does the loser have to write a book report about Jared Kushner's new book? You know what? <laughs> you know what? You. I, listen, I want everyone to be home to understand what it's like trying to be creative at this place. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? You throw out yeah. a new idea and you just get shit on. You know what, listen, Elijah? We'll do it over a Tom, Todd Save Tommy, the World. Tommy's, show Tommy's, for like a, Tommy's like early 80s Steve Jobs. He just thinks we should think different. Yeah, you know, think and we're, we're automatons with our PCs. Look, I think I finally found a slot for that for that, that prize. I'm about to throw a hand <laughs> What are you about to do? Let's hear some takes. Okay. The first topic is the queen. You guys may have heard Queen Elizabeth died last week. Bringing yes, her seventy-year reign to a close, both mourners and Die takes, off queen, yeah. you know, <laughs> both mourners and takes have gathered in observance. Oh boy. That brings us to these takes: two are real, one is a fake. Here's the first. Okay. I'm sorry, but I'm seeing thousands of people outside of Buckingham Palace and millions of people sending condolences from all around the world. Twitter is not real, and you don't have to give in to the woke mob to be loved. That is number one. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Take number two. I always thought of Queen Elizabeth as an avatar of nepotism and colonialism, but as time went on and victimhood became fashion, I began having creeping admiration for her stoicism. And now, Ugh. take number three. Right now, we're seeing proof that monarchies have value because they last a long time instead of being subject to the crazed politicking of the day. All right, mm. two takes and a fake. Let me know if you need to repeat any of those. So I, I'm not going to say which. I definitely, I recognize one of the takes. I've seen it. I've experienced it. You want a fucking cookie? Uh, <laughs> what does that do for anyone? What does that do for anyone listening? He's, pretty, he's, he's pretty, really yeah, upset from your previous comment. He doesn't like that. Really he really hurt him. <laughs> to your he really hurt him. He's, uh, hurt people hurt people. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's what we're getting from Tommy. Um, to your vote. I am gonna say, well, we have to do it at the same time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How's this? How's this work, CTO? I think you guys just deliberate. Everyone brings their own. Oh, you yeah, can man. agree. You can disagree with each other. Okay. All right. You don't have to Everybody have their conclusion. Yeah. I go. Uh, I'm. I'm one. Three. I say two. Wow. Wow. That's good. Good. Good this take. Cool. Good take hunting. Yeah. All right. Uh, the winner is Favreau fake take number one is the fake of course it is of course it is I knew it was one or two I thought I two I knew I, I recognized take two yes. three is something you can you give about. us who that now are you is this part of the game you're gonna give us who the takes are from yeah you want to guess for take number two Ooh, or do you want to just tell us no bit? no they just, just tell us just, just tell, tell us, us. Just tell just tell us. us. <laughs> it's Marine Dowd take number two is from Marine Dowd mm. uh, okay and yeah uh, yeah I could I could see that where's sure. take number three from uh Dave Rubin over at the blaze Okay. Oh. Okay. All right. Right on. One for me. 
just just I, just under like what come on america we we don't like this <laughs> royalty it's bad I think they should be they should be marched to the town square. Their goods should be taken from them and given to the people. I, I see I'm Charles. You were invited on the special uh, special bonus episode I, of Pod Save the World. I see Charles. <laughs> I see Charles like waving his little hand to get some member of his team to like remove something from in front of him, and it's like, who the fuck are you? You're just some guy with kind of oddly chubby fingers <laughs> telling people what to do. You don't deserve it. You don't do anything. So the weird hands. He does some sausage weird fingers. Hands. Yeah, no. Uh, what, uh, Drink uh, some water, Charles. What you look dehydrated. What an incredibly nuanced take, the likes of which you might find on Love It or Leave It. I think you can <laughs> I think you can I think you can hate the monarchy and all that it stands for. And just have and such admiration for this rich woman for the power with fine. which she brought to doing nothing. She seemed like a nice enough person. No one has ever done so little the weird, for their country. The weird accent. What is no that? one Silence could ever lambs? have done Silence so much by lambs. doing nothing. Seem... There are many who have fallen prey to doing something in their lives, but not our Queen Elizabeth the second how lucky we were that for 70 years she did absolutely fucking nothing olivia's notes are like cut all of no this. leave us in i don't care it's hard he i don't care what the voice the whole time i'm Elijah. looking at him the whole time <laughs> He's staring right at Take me control. I, I couldn't look directly at him. anyway Elijah, let's you're keep going next, keep next going one. uh speaking of the crown i did know who matt smith was for the record love it thank you Got your back. of course you did all right of course you did let's move on to round number two a new topic I thought okay. other producers were going to do something. Nobody said yes. It's just you. No, I tried, and they were like, "Takes are your thing." Like we don't have the sickness. Like <laughs> they were thing. like, "We don't fair. have a sickness like you." And it was actually, I was like, "You don't." Like, so there will be more segments Harsh. in the future. We want to expand the PSA universe, though. Olivia and Hallie did a great job working on this with me today. They're they're the best. All right, new topic. All right, great. The level looks like enough. <laughs> You derailed him, and then you yelled at him for being derailed. <laughs> the fuck kind of you? You, you, You'll see. You'll see him at the holiday party. Chill the fuck out. <laughs> All right, conflict works. The segment's going great. Unbelievable. Uh, topic number two: threats to democracy. So recently, Joe Biden has called out MAGA Republicans for trying to undermine democracy. Let's hear some takes about it. These are all headlines. They're short and okay. sweet. So, Ooh. headline number one. Joe Biden's speech was worse than simply being divisive. It was hypocritical. Headline number two. Democrats were the first election deniers. Headline number three. Joe Biden is disgracing the institution of the primetime presidential address. Which one oh, is got it. I got this one. Can you read can you read give me one and two again? I know three we all know three was written by Mark Thiessen. So what's whoa, one whoa. and two? Oh, you just gave us gave they it know, away. They, I, I trust my boys. What's one and two? Uh one. Joe Biden's speech was worse than simply being divisive. It was hypocritical. Two, Democrats were the real first election deniers. That's but that's a true thing I've seen. I think out number there. one is the fake take. I do too. Okay, I, I agree. I'm, I'm I agree. Going, I, I agree. want you to just know that Mark Thiessen uh, likes to defend torture and write things that stupid, and he's yet still employed by the Washington Talk about Post. torture. Read these columns. My, my predecessor. <laughs> <laughs> team win. You guys win as a team. There you nice. go. Everyone's okay, right. One was the fake one. I'm still, I'm still in the lead. Funded. Just important. I'm in the lead. <sighs> it's true. Yeah, John's in the lead. <laughs> uh, any comments okay. on the state of democracy right now? The discourse out there that Democrats are the real election deniers. That uh, no, you're not gonna, you're not going to bait me into that. You're yeah, bait me into that. that's a real fun Twitter debate. 2006, think... 31 Democrats in Ohio legislature. Don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I'll just only say that I think there's a lot of uh, um, uh, a lot of people in a mindset of just like loving Queen Elizabeth, and I think it's because <laughs> there are a fair number of Americans who just wish to be fucking ruled. <laughs> and that's something to consider. Okay. Strong. Strong. Mm-hmm. That was a strong take. All right. Before we move on to the last round, just to recap, Favreau's up <laughs> two to one to one. Thank sure. you, Elijah. Thanks, Elijah. How do you guys think this is going so far? New segment. Just Great. To... Really good. Really yeah, good. Little really sl- good. A little slow. Okay. <laughs> Whose fault is that? <laughs> I'll try, try to bring a little pace here. As we move on to topic <laughs> number three, <laughs> should be a home game for Tommy. So yeah. the war in Ukraine. Because he's a world, though, not because he's from Ukraine. Yeah, sure. Foreign sure. Policy <laughs> I'm, I'm Russian, actually. Yeah, so a, a light topic for the final one. Great job. Keep going. I, it was tough to either start out with, a, you know, choose to start out with a banger and uh, with the, with the queen. But anyway, war in Ukraine. This weekend, Ukrainians put on a stunning counteroffensive. They retook huge chunks of territory from the Russians and outperformed most expert expectations. Let's look at some takes about it. Take number one: 
Let's be clear. Joe Biden already lost the war for Western civilization. Putin didn't withdraw from Afghanistan. Putin isn't teaching critical race theory in Russian schools. <laughs> Take number two. Wow. Jesus. Right now, things are going very, very badly, which is why the Ukrainians are so desperate. The Biden administration is trying to figure out how they retreat from their dumb position that they've taken. And now take number three. As Russia wages war, the United States Army is training officers on gender identity. Forcing soldiers to accept that one can choose their gender creates frictions within an organization that is dependent on unity. Which one is the fake? Man, those all seem so real. And there's versions of them out there. Yeah, I feel one or two. I, I, feel, I, I am. I'm, I'm going to go. I'm with you. Can you can, can, can you read the first two again? Yeah, read the first read, two. Read the, the first yeah. two. We need the first phone two. Phone a friend. Phone a friend. Okay. Take number one. Let's be clear. Joe Biden has already lost the war for Western civilization. Putin didn't withdraw from Afghanistan. Putin isn't teaching critical race theory in Russian schools. <laughs> with that last part. Uh, take number two. Right now, things are going very, very badly, which is why the Ukrainians are so desperate. The Biden administration is trying to figure out how they retreat from the dumb position that they've taken. God, two sounds like something Tucker Carlson said yeah, very recently. Two, sound, yeah. two, is, two is colloquial. I'm very impressed by the crafting of these yeah. of the fake take. I, go uh, I, I think I'm going to go one. I think I'm going to go one. <laughs> I'm going to go two, I think. Uh, God, you know, I'm really torn. I feel like I'm, oh no, I don't, I just don't want, there's no, I'm going two just because it's the only way to come back. Wow, Favreau, strong win, two point win. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Yes. I felt it, I felt it, I felt it. it. Take number two is from Douglas McGregor, who is a Ukraine war expert. He said that on Tucker Carlson's show right at the start of the counteroffensive. Oh, I haven't even seen had, it. Yeah, I you had it. Had I knew it. it. You had it. You should have gone with your gut, man. And then the third one was basically Ted Cruz said something similar. Yeah, it's, a, it's been all over. That no. third one is an op ed. Yeah. Is that an op ed? It's from the Washington Free Beacon. Yeah, yeah. Sure. One second. I saw you that. know what? This was great. Yeah, the Russian army is not. Um, Showing how tough I they love are. this game. I'll I play like, it all the time. I like this game too. I would also like to I'll challenge anyone. I'd like to implore uh, pro-Ukraine Twitter that a successful Ukrainian offensive is not a moment to retweet yourself from a few months ago to show how right you are. That's a weird with your way into yeah this. with your Twitter pick. That's uh, it's really a self-absorbed. It's not a TV show. It's, a, it's, not, it's real people. It's just not a TV show. Also, like people need to stop just constantly tweeting videos of. Soldiers getting killed on either side, like it's it's just thrown snuff. A game, a gamified war is not uh, it's not bad a great for everybody. development at all. No, long term, it's one, horrible. One more for thing, everyone. the internet has fucked up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, is that too serious to close? Sorry, That's on me. no, that was That's my yeah. bad. No, Ponzi, 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 uh, and I'm also, pissed. thanks to uh, Lindsay Owens uh, for joining us today. She's great. Thanks to all of you. And uh, looks like looks like you two will be writing a uh, I mean, get was, that book report about Jared Kushner's book soon. This game was rigged. Get the any do any day now. Let's see. Bye. Stop, stop the steal. Love it. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner Bernstein. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. 